Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Hi all, welcome. Constance Pinley. Um, we were thrilled to be able to have the opportunity to pull together such a distinguished and varied panel to talk about the state of the industry. Um, so I'm just going to give some brief introductions here and uh, then we will uh, get going. Uh, the panelists have all said that they want to hear from you. So we're going to do a couple of initial questions, uh, but then it's, uh, you know, they really want to hear from you. What are your concerns? Uh, Dana Walden uh, was recently elevated to uh, chairman of 20th Century Fox Television, uh, which is I think we would have to say a prolific supplier of primetime network series and home to many of the most acclaimed writers, producers, and performers working in television. Uh, Walt, Walden has partnered in this position with Gary Newman. Uh, the two have overseen the operations of 20th Century Fox Television since they were appointed to the presidency in December 1999. Uh, and they've led the studio to unparalleled success across all media, from broadcasting cable television to syndication, mobile, broadband, and beyond. Maybe we'll be hearing about some of that beyond today. Uh, for the 2007-2008 uh, season, okay, this is just their series. 24, American Dad, Back to You, Bones, Family Guy, King of the Hill, Prison Break, Unhitched, and uh, The Simpsons for Fox, uh, and for uh, uh, ABC, Boston Legal, Misguided, and Women's Murderer Club. Uh, for CBS, How I Met Your Mother, Shark, and The Unit, and for The CW, My Name is Earl, uh, no, My Name is Earl for NBC, and Beauty and the Geek for The CW. I hope you sleep sometimes. <laughs> um, 20th Century Fox is uh, recognized as a creative haven to some of the most talented writers and producers working in television today. Uh, some of those um, include Seth MacFarlane, Sean Ryan, Greg Garcia, Ryan Murphy, David E. Kelly, and Howard Gordon. Uh, and also, uh, you enjoy an exclusive relationship with uh, Imagine Television. So in addition to uh, this roster of acclaimed live-action scripted comedies and dramas, uh, 20th Century Fox Television uh, is also uh, the industry leader in producing animated comedies for prime time, uh, with five animated hits currently in production on new episodes. Uh, Dana Walden uh, and Gary Newman oversee uh, the studio's uh, uh, very successful worldwide licensing and merchandising division, uh, which is charged with extending and exploiting the company's vast array of entertainment properties, including, you know, The Simpsons, Family Guy, 24, uh, and, and all across the categories, publishing, video games, uh, uh, promotions, e-commerce, retail, themed entertainment, uh, and consumer products. Uh, and they also sh do the licensing efforts for uh, Fox Film, Fox Sports, and uh, a number of uh, third parties, uh, including uh, uh, Halo. Uh, now, in the fall of 2002, 
they pioneered what is now a common industry practice of releasing television series on DVD immediately following each broadcast. I bet there are a lot of people in this room who are happy about that innovation. Um, so Walden and Newman have also been in the vanguard of developing new production models. Uh, uh, creating Fox 21, uh, a production house devoted to empowering writers uh, to produce their passion projects uh, by rethinking conventional television production economics. Uh, this goes on and on, uh, but uh, the level of accomplishments, uh, but I uh, uh, want to give Dana Walden a chance to tell us some of these in her own voice. Um, we have on the panel uh, uh, an executive, we have two writers, and we have a media scholar. Uh, Anne Flett Giordano uh, is celebrating, I just heard, her retirement from a very long career uh, writing television. Uh, she met her writing partner, Chuck Randberg, in the theater arts department at UC Santa Cruz. I know there's some UC Santa Cruz people here. And they've been writing together for 35 years. Uh, they got their start on Kate and Alley. Uh, they went on to win five Emmys on Frasier, uh, two for writing, three for producing. They also won a Golden Globe, uh, got a Writers Guild nomination, and uh, Anne said that they lost to Seinfeld's puffy shirt episode. Uh, after uh, five years, uh, Anne and Chuck left Frazier to do an overall deal with Paramount, where they consulted on shows and development. Um, uh, Becker, Late Line, among others. They had two shows of their own on the air, uh, Encore, Encore with Nathan Lane, and It's All Relative. And Anne said that she feels lucky to be ending this long career on such a high note, Desperate Housewives. Uh, Tony Graffia is one of UC Santa Barbara's most distinguished alumni working in television. Uh, we are very grateful to everything that she's given to the Consoling Passions Conference. Um, uh, she um, uh, was on our alumni panel last night. Uh, uh, earlier today, she brought together uh, writers from Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, to have just fabulous uh, uh, panel on working on Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Um, when Tony left UCSB, she was planning to be a rock star, uh, but somehow fell into writing. Uh, she got her start on Quantum Leap, Life Goes On, and China Beach, and then went on to write for and eventually write and produce shows as varied as Cop Rock, Melrose Place, Chicago Hope, and Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Uh, she had her own series with John Wells, Orleans. And most recently, she's worked as a writer and producer on Roswell, Carnival, Battlestar Galactica, and the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Uh, so thank you for everything you're giving to us this weekend, Tony. Uh, Toby Miller, our token academic on this panel, uh, came to the University of California from NYU 
how many years ago? Three, three years ago. Uh, he's a professor at UC Riverside in the Department of Media and Cultural Studies. Uh, Toby is known to many people at this conference as the editor of Television and New Media, uh, the former co-editor of Social Text, and the new co-editor of Social Identities. Uh, after working in broadcasting, banking, and civil service, Toby became an academic in the late 1980s when cultural studies was starting its boom uh, and was able to parlay a combination of his work experience, theoretical interests, and political commitments into a new career. Uh, and since which time he's taught media and cultural studies, and I wouldn't just say taught media and cultural studies, he's been instrumental in building uh, the field of media and cultural studies uh, across the humanities and social sciences uh, in several universities in Australia and uh, at NYU and then came to join us in the University of California. He is the author of so many books on media that uh, I'm not even going to try to list all of them, uh, but he, um, uh, one uh, that is forthcoming that I'll tell you about is TV Studies, A Short Introduction. And maybe that's what Toby will be giving us today. So we're starting off uh, by uh, asking all of our distinguished panelists how they got into this. Uh, and we just would uh, like to hear that. And then uh, maybe a follow-up question uh, after we've gone around on, uh, based on your experience uh, in the industry or in academe, uh, you know, from very different positions here, uh, you know, what from what you've observed, experienced, uh, you know, what kinds of trends do you see uh, uh, that have taken place and are now emerging in your respective fields? So, want to start? Uh, sure. Do you want me to answer both, or maybe we'll go through it first, getting into the business? Yes. All right. And then we'll get around to okay. the observations. Um, so, I started my career in 1980. Hello. <laughs> I started my career in 1986 at a public relation firm called Bender Goldman and Helper in Los Angeles and the specialty of this firm was working on television series for major studios. So sort of right out of college I started working on TV shows. I worked on Star Trek The Next Generation, Entertainment Tonight, uh, some syndicated shows like Hard Copy and Entertainment Tonight, and then some network primetime shows uh, like Wings. I, I did a little bit of work on Cheers. Um, and then the big one that I worked on at the time was Star Trek The Next Generation. I spent five years at that company working on a variety of different series, both on the launches of those shows and the maintenance of, you know, sort of keeping a show on the air and trying to make viewers aware of where they can find their favorite shows and why they should tune into the shows that we were representing. And then in 89, I worked on the launch of a talk show that it's kind of shocking to me because it was so phenomenal at the time, the Arsenio Hall show. And I talk to young people now and they're like, who? Um, but I worked on the Arsenio Hall show, which was a very exciting place to be. Uh, it was a, the first time a talk show host had challenged Johnny Carson at the time uh, for a late night time show slot. 
And the thing that was interesting about Arsenio is he had a very specific strategy. He was going to um, speak directly to an audience that wasn't being taken care of by Johnny Carson. So if your parents were in one room watching Johnny Carson and you were in your late teens, early 20s, sort of a very desirable demographic, you could watch Arsenio in the other room and see um, people like Mariah Carey and Snoop Dogg, you know, uh, in particular recording artists that would never be seen on the Johnny Carson show, and that the two shows could coexist, and they did very nicely for about five years. Um, about three years into the run, I went to work directly for Arsenio as head of marketing for his production company. He had a very uh, large commitment from Paramount Pictures at the time to develop motion pictures and TV shows. And I worked for Arsenio for a short time, for about a year. And then the woman who recruited Arsenio to Paramount, an executive named Lucy Salhaney, uh, asked me if I would like to join her at uh, 20th Television, which was the old banner company, um, which is now part of my company, was under the umbrella of 20th Television, which was the primetime network programming company and the syndication unit. And I did publicity at the studio. I oversaw publicity at the studio for a couple years. And then I was at a retreat, actually uh, in Santa Barbara, where my current boss, Peter Chernin, who is the number two executive in all of the News Corporation right under Rupert Murdoch, uh, came to the retreat to meet a few of the executives and, a wa and watch a couple of us present our business. And following uh, our presentation, I knew either something great had happened or horrible because I was seated next to him at dinner. And it was incredibly intimidating. But basically what he proposed to me is that I move into the programming area of the company and work directly on the shows rather than being limited to just the publicity area. And I made that move in 92 and then started my career path as a creative executive at the studio, which took me through uh, drama development, current programming, where I worked on shows like The X-Files and The Simpsons, and then in drama development, where I actually worked on the development of Roswell, which Tony was a writer on, and Chicago Hope mm -hmm. as well. And uh, finally, as you just heard, I was named president of the studio about 10 years ago with a partner, Gary Newman. We have very complementary skills. Skills. The idea behind our partnership is that my partner was the head of business affairs for the studio at the time that we were promoted. I was the top creative uh, executive. And together, our partnership has now lasted uh, just about a decade. And, you know, as you described, we produce a variety of different shows. We've gotten into a variety of dis different distribution areas. And uh, that's me. <laughs> I feel much less impressive. Um, <laughs> I started at the University of California. I knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew as a kid I wanted to be a writer. Um, and uh, freshman year in my dorm, three, do three doors down the hall was Chuck Randberg. And they didn't even have a television department then, although they had terrific television shows then. It was when television had become socially responsible and interesting, and you had Mary Tyler Moore and MASH. And, but it was only a film department. Everybody wanted to do film, and the auteur theory was big, and Godard and Truffaut weren't fighting yet. And so it was, it was something that everybody wanted to do. And Chuck and I, one night at an art opening, had a couple glasses of wine too many and admitted to each other, we really think they're doing great stuff 
in TV. <laughs> and it was the equivalent then of, you know, I like, I like babies for breakfast too. My God. You <laughs> so we, we kind of kept it quiet. We, um, we both wrote our senior projects together. We wrote two screenplays. And um, I not only took, I just would advise anybody out there who is a student, I not only, I majored in theater arts with an emphasis in writing for film, I also had a major in psychology where I learned so much about motivation, character motivation. I read like crazy and took a lot of literature classes where I learned story structure. It, it was a really good experience. But I ended up taking so many classes, they like threw me out early because I had too many. I stayed for summer. I just loved it there. And so I went down to LA not knowing anybody before Chuck. And in those days, it was different than now. There were lots of little production companies that made like drive-in movies and things like that. And and you could take your resume to 20th Century Fox or someplace, and it's a personnel department. They were going to get it, and you know you'd never hear from them. But you could walk into these little places. And I walked into New World, which was Roger Corman's company. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him. And it was, it was crazy. It was exactly like college, only we had more money. It was just kids going wild. And I remember when, when I was there, um, Ron Howard was sitting outside with his dad. And I said, God, that's that Opie kid. What's he doing? Is he going to be in something? And they said, no, he really wants to direct. And many of you may not remember Eat My Dust. That was his first film. And then and eat my dust too, and then so on and so forth to the Da Vinci Code. But it was a place where loads of people got started. Joe Dante, all kinds of people. So I come in with my little resume, and I want somebody to read my screenplays. And we all worked at Santa Cruz. Everybody did everything. We made movies all the time. So you knew how to do sound. You knew how to do camera. You knew how to act. You just did everything for everybody. So I came in with my little resume, and they pointed me to a production manager. They were doing a Kate Jackson, um, David Carradine movie. And I took it over to him, and I know this wasn't on purpose, but I give him my little spiel, and he takes it, and he meant to like throw it on his desk, but it lands on the floor. And I'm thinking, oh my god. So, And he said, look, you're really tan, which is something else Santa Cruz had prepared me for, because I did a lot of this reading on the beach. And he said, we need beach extras at the Channel Islands, 10 bucks a day, can you start tomorrow? And I said, yeah. So a couple days later, I'm laying on the beach, getting tan, which I know how to do, and I hear this discussion with the producer and the director about whether to use me or a dummy as Kate Jackson's stunt double. And not for the first time in this business, I was thinking, pick me over the dummy, please pick me over the dummy. So... Uh, I got the job. They picked me because I'm uh, more dangerous, but it looked more real. So I'm in a dark wig, and I'm in a car, and no raisin pay, $10 a day. And we're driving through plate glass windows, and we're smashing into cars, and we're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And at one point, I hit my head really hard on a, the safety equipment. Was I mean, these were low-budget films. And I hit my head, and they came running over with the first aid. And this is another place when I was at Santa Cruz, I took for my science electives a lot of immunology and physiology. And they came running over with beer and quaaludes. That, <laughs> that, was, the, that was the state of it at the time. And, and I knew enough that that didn't go well with a concussion. So I knew not to do that. So, and I sort of parlayed all this stardom into um, just continuing to work on independent 
projects which led to commercials and then I was commercials were great I was flying all around the country to do like Hawaiian punch commercials but I'd get to meet Robert Redford it's fun. I just felt like I was in the business and I was all excited and I let the writing go and Chuck was still at Santa Cruz so when he finally came down he got a job at Lorimar Productions and it was a TV studio they were doing Dallas and Knott's Landing but they were trying to do comedy and we really wanted to write comedy so he got me a job there too I was in publicity and we would write all day long and then at night we would go home I mean we'd work all day long and at night we'd go home and write and I'd just broken up with my boyfriend which was great because nothing like I have to write and I'm going to show him and he's going to be so sorry so um, we were just working all the time but we knew we needed people like Dana to read our scripts and we had no idea how to do that so um, what we did because I worked in publicity MGM Lorimar was at MGM. MGM was still a movie studio then. It was still very much, you know, think, there were takeover things happening, but it was still functioning. And they used to have huge galas and all kinds of parties and show parties, but, I mean, enormous parties. So we decided to meet people like Dana. We would have to sort of not just be those invisible secretaries and what have you. And so I had one evening gown, and Chuck had a rent, not a rented taxi, but a used tux. And I would put us on the weekend work list and so that we could get on the lot during the day. And we'd sneak our fancy clothes in. And we would work all day on our little scripts. And then when the party started downstairs and it was safe, we would dress up. And we would go down and we would crash these events so that we could meet people and meet producers and, and seem like, you know, not, not people that, that were just sort of invisible. And um, we had some great times. We met Cary Grant. I was introduced to the King of Spain. We just we had just wild times. But we also met um, some producers, and one of them was Bob Ellison, who had done Mary Tyler Moore and all kinds of great shows. Charlie Hawk, David Lloyd. We met some really great people. And we had a spec Kate and Alley, which it had just come on the air. There was only an order for six, and we thought, well, if we do this maybe nobody else is doing a spec for it because who knows if it'll be picked up and Bob said he would read it he sent it to Bill Persky and they they read it, they gave us like 10 days to come to New York, we had no money and suddenly we were in New York and we were TV writers and that's pretty much how it all happened, so it was lots of fun Tony. Oh, I have to follow not only Dana Walden but (laughs) someone with an Emmy in comedy (laughs) um Constance got it a little bit backwards. I um, actually came to California to be a rock star before I went to UCSB, and I was a, a terrible failure at, at being a rock star, thank God. Um, but I, I wound up somehow at UCSB, a, a school which I love very much. And um, But I wasn't a film major. Back then I was a, a communications major, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and I was lucky enough just to take one elective uh, class in screenwriting um, with a wonderful professor who's very uh, famous here, um, who's no longer with us, uh, Paul Lazarus. And the class and the professor were just so inspiring to me, um, and I just loved it. And I wrote... um 
I don't even think I wrote a whole script, just scenes. But um, I, I enjoyed it so much, but I never dreamed about doing it for a living. I had no idea what I was going to do. I, I did like writing, and when I graduated, I got a job at an um, advertising agency. I sense a trend, because we all worked sort of in publicity advertising. Um, I, I worked in a small Santa Barbara firm and had a lot of fun, learned about writing. But the objective of, of advertising is pretty much to say what you need to say in as little words as possible. And um, I don't think I think that way. Um, I was interested in telling stories, so I, I was supposed to write things like greeting cards and, you know, um, hamburger menus and things like that, and I would I remember going to write a greeting card and, like, filling up the whole card. And then my <laughs> boss would come in and say, this is great, but it's a greeting card. It's needs, we need one line in the middle. And I was like, I can't, I can't do it in one line. I just wanted to, like, fill up, you know, six cards and make a story. And, um... So I, uh, I left uh, advertising and came down to L.A., and I was lucky enough to, to meet some people in television and be offered um, an, an assistant job, which was very insulting, I thought. And I was like, but I'm a writer, you know. And um, I said, I, I would like to write scripts, maybe, because I took, you know, one class, and I know what I'm doing. And they're like, what else have you written? And I said, well, you know, burger menus and greeting cards, you know, but how hard could it be writing scripts, right? And, well, I found out, but they were like, you know, you can have this uh, $200 a week assistant job, basically, is what you're qualified for. And so, um, luckily, I took it, and I, I realized that uh, I think I'm one of these people, if, if I could have majored in film back then, and if I knew enough to do it, if I could come back to school today, I'd probably be sitting in the audience, I'd be one of you, because I would love to study film and humanities and all this stuff, but I really got my education in the trenches of, of the television business. Um, I had to to take my, you know, degree with highest honors and go and, you know, walk people's dogs and wash cars and get people's lunches and, and work as an assistant... Uh, for six years before I ever got a writing assignment. And, um, I, but I learned so much about writing. I, I hung out with the writers. I read every script there was. Um, I studied it and just really learned from being um, on the sets and in the trenches. And I got my break on a, I was lucky enough to get a break on a show called China Beach that was a very uh, critically acclaimed show. And it was a fa- my, one of my favorite shows and I watched it. Um, but I started on staff as a researcher. Um, I used, I had a little bit of background in journalism and I used that to come in and say, you know, I, I didn't have to walk anybody's dog. I was like, I'm over that. If I can be with the writers. And they said, yes, you can research. And I got to sit in a room with people like John Wells and Carol Flint and Lydia Woodward that were some of the top, um, and John Young who created China Beach. And I learned from the best. And I was a researcher for a year in the room, um, working directly with them, studied the way uh, they worked, you know, watched how they, I just, I profiled them, you know, so that I could learn from them. And uh, luckily after a year there, they let me um, pitch an idea to them, which which they bought. I wrote a wrote it for them um, freelance, and they liked it and put me on staff. And I was very lucky. And John John Young was one of my early mentors, and uh, we subsequently did some pilots together. Um, but it's a it's something I never thought I, w- I was really a fan of television, like you all are. And um, I just thank God every day that I get to do a job that I love, and I'm, I'm very happy and I'm happy to be here today. And that's that's how it started. So, I will be the failure on the panel. <laughs> I've prepared incredibly interesting remarks on the future of the industry, which I will not deliver at this time. Instead, I will tell you about my failure. So, 25 years ago, I was offered a job uh, 
as a, an on-camera person for the equivalent of 60 minutes, and I turned it down because I thought that it would be too exciting and I should instead continue being an office worker, which I did. About six or seven years later, <laughs> in my early 30s, I decided that I would return to television. So I started dating a producer, and I said to her after a while, do you think that now is the time? And she said, honey, the time has passed. Old father time is now marching. You're not as cute as you were six, seven years ago, and you can't start anymore. It's over. So that was unfortunate. A few years later, I moved to New York City, and because of my accent, the BBC decided that they would uh, allow me to front what was one of their occasional forays, they're making some forays again now, into a nightly television news program that would go out on what we now know as BBC America and so on. And my first assignment was to host a half-hour talk program. This was the week that the Kansas School Board, hi to those of you I know who are here who are from Kansas, had voted that creationism would be taught in the schools. And I was required to interview one of the people who voted this way live on camera. One of the things I do when I'm thinking, which is rare, is to close my eyes for quite lengthy periods, something that people who are properly trained in television do not do when on camera like this. It doesn't look very good. And as this man was rabbiting on about the extraordinary importance of the Kansas School Board's decision, I was essentially doing this. And then I said, do you really believe this? Which was what I hope most of the viewers were thinking, but did not go down well. So I was not invited back. And my last story of failure, this is like your rock star story, is when I was being interviewed along with Kenneth Turan, I think that's the right way to pronounce his name, the LA Times film critic, the night before the Oscars, uh, and the film that they wanted us to talk about was American Beauty, if you remember this. So there I am in the studio, and unfortunately the producer, uh, I guess probably at WGBH in Boston, didn't realise that I could hear what he was saying to the camera operator. He said to her, can you get rid of the bags under that man's eyes and she was about as far away from me as Constance is with a camera in what was not exactly a high-tech studio situation and she threw herself at me an extraordinary achievement because I mean threw herself in one particular sense an extraordinary achievement because we were going to air in less than a minute she had her own makeup kit in her inside pocket. She got it out, threw stuff on my face as she leapt towards me to try to hide the bags under my eyes, went back uh, to her camera position, and then we were live to air. And the, the first question from whoever it was uh, at PBS was, going to you, Toby Miller, what do you think about the midlife crisis suffered by American men in their 40s? <laughs> and that's my career in television. Well, I guess those of us in media and cultural studies have these failures uh, to thank uh, for uh, Toby having to instead go off and be one of the leading lights uh, in television, media, and cultural studies in the world. Okay, so um, what I'd like to do now is, uh, based on your uh, long and varied careers, um, what are some of the uh, trends that you see emerging? Uh, how do you see both the workplace and the industry changing? Uh, you know, anything about, you know, what you see about the effect of new medias on the industry? Um, uh, uh, anything that you see about audience trends? 
you know, I want to leave it as wide open as possible. Can we start with Toby? Sure, we'll start with Toby. Big picture. You, I'm happy to start. I just thought when you said you had a couple observations. Okay, no, it's fine, yeah. So I, I, it's interesting. I don't know if people are aware of this. Maybe there's even been talk of it. But tomorrow is the end of what used to be called Turn Off TV Week. But it's been renamed. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's been renamed. It's no longer called uh, TV Turn Off Week. It's called Mental Detox Week, <laughs> right, is the new name. And seriously, and Mental Detox Week is the new brand name because it's deemed that television no longer matters so much. Um, the theory is that you spend seven days unplugged. So not seven days not watching TV, ending on Sunday the 27th or whatever it is, but seven days without the cell phone, without the iPod and so forth. And I guess the main thing I'd want to say is that this notion of the demise of television, and there are several books that have come out, popular books in different languages, basically called Television is Dead, but that's not really the case. And I've got some numbers I'd like to throw out for a minute without being too boring. Um, you know, more than 98% of homes in this country have a TV set. 64% have cable. That's up 20 points in 20 years. Uh, people spend $20 billion a year in this country buying TV sets. 51% of the population have at least three. Um, I do, for example. Most people have access to over 100 channels. If you look at how people find out about presidential elections in this country, the main source is television news, and it's going up, not down. If you look at children, uh, children aged between 6 and 14, they're watching TV in ways they haven't done since the 1980s. Um, who are the keenest TV viewers? They're young girls. They like new technology. They adopt it at a frenetic pace, but television is king. If you go worldwide, you're going to see thousands and thousands of new cable and satellite stations over the last few years. The CIA, which is the major source for numbers about TV stations around the world, 7,000 in Russia, 3,000 in China, 2,500 in the EU, over 2,000 here. If you look at the figures at the OECD, which is basically all the advanced industrial economies plus Mexico, which joined when it had all its oil findings, um, the number of TV networks in the OECD increased in the last three years from about 800 to about 1,100. Uh, a third of the media time that people in OECD countries devote to things as consumers is devoted to television, um, and uh, only a fifth to doing things online. It's the most popular medium everywhere. If you look at commercials, look at Toyota. No slouch when it comes to promoting things. Toyota spends 40% of its advertising budget on TV and 4% on the internet. And of course, the systems are emerging, they're overlapping. The great clearinghouse that television has done, a kind of commercial cultural clearinghouse, informational entertainment clearinghouse, is continuing, but under, in part, uh, in some sense, a new sort of umbrella. And then the other things I wanted to talk about very briefly um, are that I think there are a couple of issues in terms of what's happening to television that get left out with the consumer focus most of us have, uh, because most of us tend to be thinking if we're writers or producers or if we're audience members, where are people going to be watching this stuff? What's the business model for perpetuating it? How are we going to have the programs we like? How are we going to have the public cultural, public sphere issues raised that we need? And there are a couple of things along the way that i just like to put on the table. Uh, one is labor, the other is the environment. The labor issue is this, and I've got like one more minute and I'm, I'll shut up. Um, I'm thinking about makeover television, the metaphor of makeover television, and I want to suggest that makeover television applies here both as a genre, a kind of programming, and as an object. Um, a lot of people fix upon makeover TV or, say, reality television as a 
sign of a decline in standards, or they celebrate it as something that is populist, that's about a newly feminized public sphere, and so on. That ignores the fact that a lot of this has originated in under-unionized sectors of the industry with very small numbers of workers required for short periods where contingent flexible labor is the norm. And that's not just about the working conditions. It's actually in the texts themselves because a lot of this stuff is all about if you don't change your body and your way of life, you won't get a girlfriend or you won't keep your wife or you won't get a raise. So what's happening to the workers offset making these programs is in a sense represented on camera in what will happen to you if you don't own up to your ethical incompleteness and address it. And then, then there's makeover television not as a genre, but as a physical object. Uh, the physical move away from fat screen TVs to flat screen TVs. Uh, when they're trashed, TV sets emit heavy metals and toxic chemicals to form electronic waste. It looks as though 270 million analog televisions will be thrown out in the United States next year. It's the hardest device to recycle, uh, probably in the world. Where will they go? They'll go to rag pickers all over the world, rag pickers in China, in India, in Brazil, uh, rag pickers in federal prisons who will not be adequately protected from the environmental consequences of these things. And quite apart from that recycling issue, uh, in Britain it's estimated that the electricity demand of the new flat screen televisions will add 700,000 tonnes a year to carbon emissions by 2010, and I'm aware that News Corp is working hard to become carbon neutral. That's an increase of 70% on the electricity required to run a fat screen TV. And in warm summers, let's not forget what it'll do to our air conditioning costs as we're trying not to fry and not have our pets fry in front of these televisions. So I want to suggest, A, there's this consumer issue, production issue, what will happen to TV? And my answer is it will probably survive and thrive. But then there's this other issue I want us to think about, the labor issue and the environmental question. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Toby. Um, and uh, Dana, would you like to would you like to respond to that? Uh, sure. Well, I, you know, I don't think it'll come as a surprise to anyone in this room that I think uh, primetime television or television in general is going to thrive and survive. Uh, it's the crux of our business. And when I was thinking and, and talking to our head of PR, Chris Alexander, who's here today, about you know what was the trend that I wanted to talk about as we were here, it was a lot about how people are consuming content and. You raise so many interesting points, Toby. I, I feel like, you know, before I talk about that, I want to address a couple of the things you said. Gossip Girl on the CW, a very interesting example of what young women and teenage women and young people in general are watching in this country today. You would never know it by looking at the ratings on the CW. They're not making an appointment to watch that show on the air. They are... Um, going to iTunes and downloading it. They're watching the network's uh, streamed version of that show throughout the week. They're TiVoing it and watching it whenever they please. And it's, it's interesting that these distribution forms, while they are hurting the network television business terribly, you know, we are at a critical crossroads in terms of whether primetime network television can survive as a business model because there are so many other places that you can consume this content and because the uh, popularity of the content has declined so dramatically over the past 20 years. But the CW tried an interesting experiment this past week. They did not stream 
uh, or offer uh, through iTunes Gossip Girl. They wanted to force their viewers and their consumers to go to the CW and watch it on primetime air schedule. And um, the the bad thing for my business is it didn't make any difference. The ratings were not impacted at all. I actually had a long conversation with the woman who runs the WB, or the CW, which used to be the WB, and she said they did the same thing on America's Next Top Model, which is so many people were watching it through other distribution forms that it was negatively impacting their broadcast. And it took three full weeks for people of this generation to realize they can't have it exactly when they want it. They can't watch it, you know, according to their schedule. They have to go back to an old model of television and watch it on the air at its regularly scheduled time, or they could certainly TiVo it. But it would still be in, you know, it still would be judged and rated as a traditional television show. And I'm interested to see what will happen over the next few weeks with Gossip Girl. They spent an enormous amount of money marketing the return of the show after the strike, that there would be original episodes. And, you know, we talked about it the next morning and absolutely no impact. That generation of people, they want television on demand. They want to decide. They want to set their own schedules. And that raises a big question about the advertiser-supported model of primetime network television, television in general, really. Um, I also thought it was an interesting observation about these makeover shows because from our perspective, and television is an incredibly cyclical business, I think it's a lot of why we're in our current state. It's not a business that really evolves, and it's not really a business of innovation. Um, I'm sitting next to people that have written on, you know, Anne on Emmy award-winning series throughout the heyday of primetime network television on the Frasers and, you know, great television that all of us can remember dating back from when I was a kid and in love with television and would watch, you know, whether it was Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley or, you know, more contemporary examples of Murphy Brown, Friends, you know, Thursday night on NBC is must-see television, and they drew a huge share of the American population watching television would go Thursday nights to NBC, and no network could shake that hold, no other network, for over a decade, and yet now we find ourselves in a time where the multi-camera sitcom that Anna's worked on so successfully for so long, up until Desperate Housewives, I believe, is almost, I mean, it's unpopular to the extent that of all of our fall development, we have one. One multi-camera sitcom, one show that looks like the show, the shows that all of us grew up on. And it's, I believe, a lot of our own responsibility. We made so many bad ones. You know, the bar, the creative bar for which one of these shows would get on the air became so low that we burned an entire audience, an entire, uh, entire generation of people out on a form of television. And the form that they turned to for a period of time has been reality, and you can see the burnout on reality now, where, you know, these makeover shows, which are really aspirational if you compare them to Jerry Springer and a sort of an era of television that was um, 
kind of deplorable in terms of daytime and sort of early fringe talk shows where people um, were just freak shows and you turned in for a sensational uh, experience of watching people humiliate themselves and act in incredibly bizarre ways. So the makeover genre really was aspirational. It was how can we take an incredible negative and turn it into something that feels a little bit more positive. But now there are so many of those shows. There's the Swan, there's the makeover shows, there's etc. burn down a genre of television. And while I would suggest that we're in a sort of golden age of, of drama programming, which is why a lot of comedy writers are now writing on dramas, whether it's Grey's Anatomy or Desperate Housewives, Ugly Betty, you know, the forms are so, sort of melding together. It's still now you see in the past season 10 shows that looked like Grey's Anatomy or Desperate Housewives, which is burning that genre of television out. So I don't know. Um, you know, at the studio, we talk a lot about um, reinventing programming and trying to do things like 24 or Prison Break. When 24 was pitched to us, we thought it was a crazy idea that would never fly. We thought it was would never get on the air. Once it got on the air, who could make a commitment, you know, as a viewer, the kind of commitment that you need to make for that show, and it actually led to the innovation of uh, a DVD release at the end of a first season because people were starting to talk about the show, but if you hadn't, you know, watched the first few episodes, you felt incredibly left out of it, and now you have an entire segment of the audience of that show that just watch the DVDs. You know, they don't watch it on air. They wait for the end of that season, and then they catch up. And sometimes it brings viewers to us the next season, but otherwise it just it proves that content is still king, but we're struggling to figure out a, uh, a business model for television that can survive right now. Tony, you were talking earlier about uh, uh, the use of webisodes uh, to try to uh, get the, bring those audiences in and get them uh, uh, caught up. Um, yeah, it's, it's been exciting for us as writers to have, um, I mean, it used to just be that there was a show and that was it. And um, there wasn't a lot of of audience access and or participation. It was like, this show was on on, you know, Wednesday night, and if you missed it, that was it. And till next season, or, you know, half a year later when it rerun ran. And um, now, you know, um, as writers, we're both excited about creating, like, with the advent of the webisodes. Um, you know, we always have... Um, too much material. I know it's, it sounds weird to say, but uh, when you have 10 writers in a room like we do at Sarah Connor, and we're, we're working all day long, 10 hours a day sometimes on on creating stories, it's just like I used to, um, you know, when a, a big music fan when I was um, a teen, and I would read about my favorite bands and how they put out an album, and then I'd read in an interview that they had so much material, and they had trouble figuring out, you know, which eight songs were going to go on this, this uh, record. And then I'd be like, you mean you had more than that? You had, you know, 25, 30 songs? Songs and like, where are they? I can't get them. You know, I, uh, you know, how come they only have one record every two or three years, and there's all these songs floating out there, but they have to all fit on this stupid record because that's the way the business is, and um, and it's the same with TV. Kind of when you got ten ten minds like the ones that some of you saw, you know, on the um, the Sarah Connor panel, and all, our job is all day long to think of stories to tell. There's a, um, I mean, sometimes it's a crunch to get the one story that you want 
to do for that episode, but but there's a lot of um, you know that falls out of the pot, you know, when you're cooking, and it's so it's nice to have you know avenues to to present that, such as the webisodes and blogging, and I don't even know what it's all called. I just know it's exploding, and there's lots of of chance to get parallel stories going with your stories, character bios and blogs. It's 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 all brand new, um, but it's very exciting, and um, and it, it's exciting for us to to also um, you know the internet has has not not just opened up avenues of, of us to you guys to tell our stories but to get audience feedback because um, in my early days of TV as well I would just write a show and it felt like it went into a black hole I'd write it and it'd be it filmed and a few months later be on TV and. I, you know, I'd never hear hear about it. Um, you know, my mom would call me. I, I kind of I liked your show. I didn't really understand it, but it was good, honey. And I mean, that's all the feedback I'd get. Or once in a while, I'd go to Pet Boys, you know, get my oil change or something, and I'd have on like the show cap or something, and somebody'd be like, "You write for that show? I love it. I love that episode where." And I'd be like, "Really, really?" And I'd sit there with you know the oil guy, and like, because like was the only feedback I'd ever get. And now, you know, gosh, you know, you go on the internet, and there's blogs, and there's there's chat rooms and there's web pages that other people make on your show. I mean, we put on, you know, the companies put on the official web page, but then there's like, you Google it and there's 10 other web pages for shows, for characters, for actors, and we get to hear finally, you know, feedback from you guys, which is, is just incredible. I feel like it's become, you know, more of a two-way street and the more you have access, it, it really means a lot. It matters to us and we all read it. We all, you know, lurk in the chat rooms and we you know, when my episode aired um, of Sarah Connor, and, you know, again, back to there's too much material, um, my show uh, was, and, and it was during the strike, I didn't get to, usually I get to edit and see my episodes being made, and uh, because we were out on strike, um, all I got was this call that says, your episode looks great, it's, it's like our best one yet, but it's, the bad news is it's 10 minutes long, and they're going to take 10 minutes out of it. And I'm like, oh, my God, what are they going to cut? Don't cut this. Don't cut that, you know? And I, I didn't even know what they were cutting. I didn't even see it till it went on television. But um, like Dana said, with the release of DVDs, I, found, I just found out they're releasing the full version, the extended play of my episode on the DVD. So, like, for me, that's great to know that, you know, that material will get out there. And it wouldn't if you didn't have, like, the extra sections on the DVDs. And also, you know, people are blogging about the episode before it even airs on this coast, like when my show was coming on, and I hadn't even seen it. Um, you know, I go on the blogs at like 7 o'clock before it airs here, and there's people back east already saying like, oh, whoa, this was awesome, this was great, or this sucked, or, you know, one of the things, what happened with John's story? He tells Sarah, you know, Sarah says she has a mission, and he says he doesn't really want to go, and he walks out, and he's not in the rest of the episode. And I know, that sucked. What's John? Why is John not in the episode? And I'm like, shit, that's one of the things they cut. And I, I found myself like, you know, I'm on the keyboard, and I'm like, oh, my God, I have to tell him. I have to tell him. I had a whole storyline. There was four scenes. He went to school, and this happened, and that happened with the girl. And, oh, my God, they would have loved it if they could have seen it. You know, and, and I'm watching people even do live. I, did, I never didn't know about this until uh, this show, that people actually blog live. I don't know if you've, you guys have seen that, but it was new to me. And so, you know, I turn on this blog, and there's two chicks already dissecting the show that I haven't even seen yet. And they're going, yeah, you know, what do you think about that? And they're talking, and I thought, 
my God, who watches this? But I guess people do. Like, who would want to watch two people sitting and talking about a show that was just on? Why didn't you just watch it, you know? But people do want to watch it. And I thought, I'm watching it, and I like it. And if I want to watch it, I guess other people want to watch it. And as a, you know, of course, as the writer, it's a huge ego trip to see two people dissecting every scene of your show. But if I was a fan, I'd probably also go on there. I'd watch, you know, the shows that I love, Mad Men or Rescue Me shows. The shows that I love, I'd sit and watch two people discussing it. So that, that didn't exist a few years ago, and it's exciting for me, like I said, not only for our opportunities for a wider array of storytelling, but also to hear back you know, from the audience, and that's one of the great advances, I think, of the Internet. Well, I'm glad that it isn't just the doom and gloom version of uh, what's happening with the media industries today, but uh, because we're also talking about uh, experimentation and emerging creative possibilities, you know, and then there's also the doom and gloom, too. But, um, uh, Anne, I was wondering about, uh, uh, have you experienced that, too? I mean, greater uh, interactivity, I mean, from Kate and Allie to Desperate Housewives, uh, you know, how you, uh, as a writer, are envisioning your audience as you're writing. Well, I, I, um, I, I actually did. We had our last uh, reading of, of the finale of Desperate Housewives on Thursday, and yesterday I retired. And, um, and today here I am. Um, I live up here, and it just got it got to be really a, a, a big schlep down to LA all the time. Um, so I'd like to do movies, but one thing I've noticed since I started in television, and it has to do with with the demise of the sitcom. And I ended up I was lucky to end up on Desperate Housewives because there weren't any sitcoms. Um, there was a couple. The Office is very good. Tina Fey shows really good, but. Um, when I started out, and, and starting when I was, oh, I'm sorry. Starting when I was a kid, you had so many good programs on, and so many good role models, and you had, like we were saying, Mary Tyler Moore and and Rhoda and Maud and um, Suzanne Plachette on uh, Newhart's show. There were lots of women who were very independent and who were making it on their own. There, were, there was a lot of social commentary in television, obviously all in the family. There were also lots of shows that had minority uh, leads. And I have a fight with some of my friends because um, I have a lot of black friends that found that Sanford and Son was embarrassing or good times. For me, I grew up in a totally lily-white neighborhood in a lily-white suburb. The only black people that came into my house came in on television. My whole family loved those shows. And for every George Jefferson, you had Lionel Jefferson to me. For every Red Fox, you had, you know, his son Lamont. And you were... For me, there was no chance for us to be prejudiced these pe because you just love these people. You love Dan Tester. They're in your lives. Television has an effect, and everybody who says it doesn't, and you can put out whatever you want, I just disagree totally. I think it has. it's the butterfly effect times a million. Um, and there were lots of good shows like that. What I've seen happen... It was like the it was like sort of the the perfect storm of things that went wrong for the comedy. I think one I just happened to be on vacation in Washington D.C. and I went to the Senate to just be in the gallery and see what was going on. And it was when they were debating could networks own their own programming and have their own production studios. And had I known what I know now, I would have been Dustin Hoffman screaming from up there, don't do it! I would have like had television on a bus and, and leaving. I, it, I think it was a disaster. Um, 
and when each, you know, if you write for ABC, for the most part, now you're doing it, you're, you've got to do it with Touchstone. If you're writing for NBC, you're doing it with Universal. At the same time, all these companies were taken over by big corporations. So now you're writing for Disney, now you're writing for Viacom, now you're writing all the production companies, you know, and it, it's not, it's a generalization. There are some really talented people that I have worked with who are network execs, studio execs, terrific. But now the network in the studios all work for the same guys, they all work for the same corporation, and that the groups, the MTMs, the TANFs, the people that fostered like creativity and fought for you at the network, with the network, the suppliers, they became part of the network. So you had a little less free trade going on. Um, and you sort of had a network mindset. Now there's still some really, really, to me, uh, creative people, like I said, I just... I, have not worked at Fox, but I have worked at, at CBS with some people I love and various things. But I will tell you honestly, dramas were were never thought of as the shows that syndicated, and they were sort of your prestige projects. Projects. The other part of the Perfect Storm was all of these new channels opening up, just millions of new channels opening up. So the the ability to syndicate. Comedy just was your cash cow. Sitcoms were the cash cow. Sitcoms, Frasier kept Paramount Studios going forever. Um, but so they got the scrutiny and dramas were left alone. Now, it seems like the opposite was true in drama. In drama, you had to be Macmillan's wife or Marcus Welby's nurse if you were a woman. Worst case, Starsky and Hutch, you have two white guys. Their black friend is not only a pimp, he's a snitch. Um, drama's left alone. If you look at drama now, and I think Fox is doing some incredibly good dramas, um, you are seeing that there are really good roles for women. There are really good roles for minorities. You, you, they have. I just think dramas have gotten better and better, and they're really terrific. The sitcom, on the other hand, under all this scrutiny, a few things happened, and I, I sort of can boil them down into the two things that I dislike most. One is the Heather Locklear effect. I love Heather Locklear. I have been to Vegas to see the Stones with her. She's the nicest person in the world. So it's not about her. It's about every single show I was ever on. Can you get Heather Locklear in it? You know, we did a focus group. We do studies. We need more men to watch this show. You know, we've been doing, we've been doing marketing research. Men's shows uh, syndicate better. So everyone's uh, everyone's agent is saying, pitch a man's show. And if you do a man's show, if you do a woman's show, you've got to get a hot girl in there, and she's just my placeholder for the hot girl. The worst experience I had with that was uh, doing a pilot for Cameron Mannheim, who is a fabulous actress, not traditionally beautiful, and I don't think she'd argue. And it was a, a two-woman show. We spent probably two and a half months writing it and the studio and the network loved it, loved it, loved it. Now they both belong to the same corporation. They love it, love it, love it. And we needed um, another woman. It was a kind of buddy comedy with two women. And we spent three months casting. We come up with Wendy Robinson Raquel, um, Raquel Robinson, who is, happens to be African-American. We were just looking for the best actress. This is the best chemistry I have seen 
since really since Fraser and Niles. And I don't know if you know, on Fraser, Fraser was originally when we were doing the pilot, it was about a guy and his father. And Sheila Guthrie, who in casting came and said, I've got this tape on David Hyde Pierce. And I just, have you ever considered putting a brother in? Because I just think he's great. Now imagine Fraser without the brother. That kind of chemistry is what makes just an incredible show. So we found this chemistry with this actress showed her to the studio, again, not Fox, they loved her. It was just, she was, the two of them together, Cameron had read with everybody, which is so sweet, absolute dynamite. Showed it at the network, absolute dynamite. They were, they were just so great. You saw that happening again. But when Wendy left, Wendy is very, very pretty, but not young. And it was, well, she's not fresh. Now, People in television did not know Wendy. She would have been plenty fresh, but fresh was like code. She's not hot. We got this is a woman show. We got to get men to watch it. And so they made us to go back to casting, which was heartbreaking. And about two weeks later, we were ready to shoot. And you, we didn't find anyone better. And you've got Wendy's performance in your head. And so we said, look, we can't find anybody. We've got the perfect person. And the network executive, who I will leave leave names out of this, but. He, he called with the solution. Lauren Holly was being flown in from Chicago. She had not read for it. She, we had not heard her. I could barely place her except Jim Carrey's ex-wife with the really hot body. Now, again, this is not Lauren's fault. Lauren is a very sweet person. But we couldn't even see her ahead of time. She shows up at table. She cannot do this part. It is totally clear at table she can't do the part. It's worse the next day because we're already ready to shoot. I mean, when you do at table, then you just start shooting for that week. It's a pilot. And we think, okay, well, everybody can see this. The studio can see it. The network can see it. Everybody's got to see it. They've got to let us have Wendy back. Um, this is, again, not her fault. And Frasier, Lisa Kudrow was the original Roz on the pilot. Three days into it, that wasn't happening, and we had to fire her, and we brought on Perry Gilpin. Same week, Conan O'Brien broke up with her. I thought she was going to kill herself. I felt so guilty and bad. And a year later, she's doing Friends, you know, sliding doors. She got the perfect thing, so, so things do work out. But... Lauren Holly could not do this part. She's the first to admit she just couldn't do it, and we had seen this wonderful thing. So now the network executive is on the hook for having come up with this idea and paid for it, and it was really expensive. So instead of letting us fire her and do Wendy, he insisted that we rewrite. Now this is something we spent three months writing. Now we're rewriting the show to find something Lauren can do. Cameron is in tears. You're rewriting it as you're shooting it that week. It's not like, oh, take your time. And, and it really was uh, killing the baby to save the bathwater. That's, that's one thing that drives me crazy. Get the hot girl in. Um, I think shows can be successful. And if they're funny, you're not going to need the hot girl in it personally. But the other thing is the copycat syndrome, which, which really drove me nuts. And again, it's so much attention on these things. And how will they syndicate? And what's our best shot to get every single person in the world interested in it? And um, my worst example of that was on Kate and Allie. We, we had only been there three years. It was our first job. We worked with one director, Bill Persky, one writer, Bob Randall. We were the whole staff. And we were kids in our 20s. It was our first job. And when Bill and Bob, after three years, they decided 
Bill wanted to, uh, Bill was having a long-term relationship with a woman in L.A., and he was just tired, and he wanted to move back. Uh, Bob wanted to go on writing, writing plays. He was a playwright. So uh, they, all they had was Chuck and I to fly back to L.A. and try and talk the network into keeping it on the air. And all season we'd worked where we had a character who was really sweet and cute. This was just a cute little show. It was women trying to make it on their own, blending families because they had kids and they didn't needed the money. So all season we had a character. Allie had met someone. He's just adorable. They go through the kind of everybody loves Raymond stuff. At the end of it, at the end of the season, he asks her to marry her. She accepts. They're already sleeping together. It's, it's, and I think Bill and Bob ended it this way, hoping the show would end, because it was kind of a nice ending for it. But the studio wants it to go on. So we fly back to talk to the head of CBS at the time, head of CBS Entertainment. And we thought, well, we need to keep it a woman's show. So we'll use Bill's model. And she'll marry Bob, as has been set up. She'll, she'll just have this long-distance relationship. That way we can keep her with Kate, keep things going. Um, after we pitched this to him, and there's a pause, and he says, what if instead of marrying her, what if Bob raped her? And my jaw is, I think, somewhere on the floor, and we're doing this silly little comedy, and you try to like keep this face on that doesn't say, are you just freaking crazy? But you say, well, that's interesting. You know what? I mean, I asked what, what brought that... He said, well, we just did it on Cagney and Lacey, and we got huge ratings. So now I'm dealing with a guy who thinks any show with two women's names in it, they're interchangeable. One's a drama. She was raped by a stranger. One's a little comedy. It's been set up for a year what kind of a character this is. So the writing doesn't matter to him. It's, we got good ratings. Let's just do it again. And it doesn't matter about the writing. It doesn't matter about the public. Another example, when Murphy Brown had... um, had her baby out of wedlock and and she was a single woman having a baby that was terrific murphy brown was wealthy murphy brown could afford help hopefully murphy brown would take time off because babies are not accessories um and it worked for that show she she was not promiscuous we get a call on fraser ross is a ross is a single woman we just had this great success with murphy brown having to have ross have a baby Frasier was not a show that lended itself to babies. Roz was a character that was very promiscuous. She had a job working four hours a day at a local radio station. She couldn't afford it. It didn't matter. That is the kind of thinking, among other things, that I think have absolutely driven sitcoms to be so generic and so bad. And you've got 10 million dumb guys with hot wives who are either long-suffering or bitchy. And that's why people started stopped watching sitcoms, as far as I'm concerned. The innovation went out of it. The joy went out of it. The creativity went out of it. It was people who base things on ratings. And it's just like Diet Coke. They go to focus groups. You know, do you like Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi? Which is sweeter? A focus group that sees something once is making decisions that would never keep cheers on the air, that would not have kept Seinfeld on the air. And I see this as really a huge problem, and I see the Internet as a possible solution to this. Next. 
Um, I'm, thank you very much, all of you, for speaking and for sharing your ideas and thoughts. Um, I have, I'm really pleased, Anne, to hear you talking about the social commentary that television had in its, uh, in a, as part of its history. And I'm curious to know what you all think of the social commentary that television may be making now. If and I'm not certain about these numbers, if it's still the case that, you know, maybe there are three men to every one woman on, you know, primetime television, um, if there are certain roles that you feel do need to get out there um, and you would love to see out there, um, are you getting ideas from the audience members through, you know, either small pitches or through, um, you know, video logs, et cetera, um, but just a, a, like a larger diversity of voices, um, and not just within, say, the United States context, but maybe globally. Well, just as Barack Obama has sort of re made me believe in politics, I haven't worked for anyone since that hard since McGovern, um, I, I now have a yes we can attitude towards TV and I think it's up to all of you since, since uh, I'm taking the coward's way out. But, <laughs> um, but I, again, this is where the internet will come in because everybody will get a shot. Uh, I totally agree with, with what you were saying about you can make one five-minute installment, another one, another one, and suddenly you have a show um, that somebody somewhere is going to be watching because people who are important are watching what's going on and they'll pick up on it. But this is the opportunity to not be noted to death and to, to do the shows that, that have a social conscience again and that represent everybody instead of just a few people. And I, I, that's why I think it's really up to young people, and I think it's really exciting what's going on, and I think the Internet can really help with that. I just I'll also just say, very, this is just a dumb story, but in terms of new media, I belong to a women's political, Hollywood women's political group, and we were very, we were very cool, and we were very democratic, and it was a lot of very smart women in television. And... Um, someone had made a documentary that was really terrific about poor women in Africa and this and, the, and honestly the documentary is fabulous but we all met um, Lawrence Kasdan's wife was having the sort of premiere and there were about 60 women in the room and we had cocktails and then we go to use her big TV system to watch it and 60 women in television can't make it come on. <laughs> and there's 20 minutes of, try channel three, try channel two, try, try this. And finally, we had to get him to come down and do it for us. And it was humiliating. <laughs> television has become so complicated. My husband has this big system and everything. So um, in terms of all these plasma TVs and new boxes to go on top, um, yeah, there needs to be some kind of tutorial for all of us because <laughs> It's it's going to be interesting. Also, actresses are the most terrified of high def because every line, everything, and and your sets. It's gonna it's gonna be interesting. I don't know if we're going to end up with just children doing shows because they still look good. <laughs> we'll see. Just just very quickly on that. I mean, um, this is only a suggestion right now. There hasn't been research to show it's the case. But a lot of people think that in terms of the advanced capitalist democracies, if we can call the United States one of those. The United States blogosphere and general internet sphere is quite a long way to the left of other countries, much more progressive in terms of the issues that are discussed and how they're discussed, because the media here are so reactionary 
that that is where the energy goes on the internet. Conversely, in countries that actually have oppositional leftist alternatives all the time on television and in newsprint and on radio, the blogosphere is actually somewhere where the right is much more powerful. Uh, this is certainly the case in the UK, for example. Mm. So there's an interesting question about, this isn't so much talking about drama, which is our focus this afternoon, but when you're talking about news and current affairs, and it's, in terms of the global issues, it's a big topic to be addressing. Uh, exactly how there is a sense in which a democratic deficit that, or a progressive deficit that may be felt in much of US public media life is compensated for on the internet and vice versa in many other places. Hi. Um, a lot of us here do girls studies of various types and I've noticed that on the networks the number of teenage girls and boys but girls in particular just seems to have been reduced dramatically particularly once the CW and the UPN merged together and you know I talked exactly about the issue of Gossip Girl during my presentation at dawn o'clock this morning um, <laughs> that's what time it was for me um, and you know I, I consider that a really um, boneheaded was the word I used for you know putting the show at nine, putting Gossip Girl at nine o'clock on a Monday night and taking it offline. Is it, but I'm trying to figure out: is this a chicken or egg issue? Are there no teen girls because teens aren't watching, or are teens not watching because there's no teens to watch? Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if any of you could address that, although particularly Dana and Anne, who has some teen girls on the show that she was just on, you know, just working on, could talk about. Well, I mean, again, I can speak for our, our company only. There is no goal to keep teens off television. I'll tell you, though, what we don't actively develop is teen-only shows, because that's a Disney model of television that the networks aren't interested in buying, and that then can't be supported in broad enough numbers. I mean, we're still to a certain extent, which is not to say we would do a show for the CW, and I think the CW, why did they take it offline? They're struggling tremendously to, you know, keep a viable business and to stay on the air. And I think it was incredibly confusing for people that UPN and the WB merged and that there was this new company called the CW and they're still facing all of the growing pains of Fox in the early years or of the WB or of UPN. Um, what we try to do in development is where it's appropriate, we want nothing more than the broadest skewing storytelling. We'd like for, you know, teenagers to be able to sit in a room with adults and have a great viewing experience with storylines that sort of cater to each of them and then cross over. You know, if you look at the OC, and that's a lot, this is a lot of, you know, what, what Ann talks about with a network trying to drive creators to do exactly what they want. You know, after the OC, then they only wanted to call, to develop, what do they call it? Bimodal, I can't remember what the development term was for the next year where they wanted parents and they wanted their teenage kids and they needed some commingling of the storylines, but they just want to cater to as many people as possible to keep a, a broad audience. Um, and, you know, again, we probably wouldn't, unless it was for the CW or for a cable network, we wouldn't do an, a show that exclusively focused on teenagers. But we would have done the OC. You know, for certain, if that was pitched to us, there, there's no reason we wouldn't have supported that and taken that to a network. 
I know those industry students behind me who actually really want to ask technical questions, but at the end of our conference, I don't have any more critical brain. I'm really just looking for a cheeky response. And I'll, I'll do a friendly fire question, and then I'll turn the question on to ourselves. My friendly fire question is for our producers, and especially our Fox representative. What do you do, to go back to Toby's opening remark, to detox? Do you take like a TV high colonic or something? Or <laughs> do you guys ever detox? And is it possible or do you take offense at that? I'd be very curious from the opening. And then my second question, completely cheeky, is what do you think of academics who kind of doth protest too much and are possible? I can't, I can't understand. What do, you think? what do you think of academics who kind of, you know, doth protest too much and maybe they're your friends or whatever and say, oh, I never watch TV. I just don't watch TV. What do you think of that? That kind of, I don't watch TV, doth protest too much. Well, I relax by watching television. <laughs> <laughs> and my husband's here, and he will tell you that's the truth. But, and my effort at detoxing was to move my BlackBerry from my bedside table into my bathroom. <laughs> so I'm not quite as available or interactive anymore. Um, yeah, I love TV, and I'm detox. I didn't even know it was give up TV week or whatever. I could we never just watch more TV. Week. Yeah, I could never do that. I'd have to go to Betty Ford or something and be locked <laughs> locked to a chair or something. And uh, my family isn't too happy about it. And but I, you know, my excuse it's great because I can say it's my job. <laughs> I have to watch Top Chef. I need to know what's going on there. Um, I watch reality, I watch everything. I watch reality, I watch dramas, and I, my TiVo, I had to add memory to it because, you know, when I first got it, I was like, this is, let's see, how many hours? That equals three days of programming. When am I gonna watch three whole days of, and, and I've had to, you know, double and triple that so I can tape all the shows. and I'm, I panic when I see like the little exclamation point, meaning it's going to get erased. And I spend hours, you know, greening my, and I call from wherever I am, go and green, great matter me, please, before it goes away. And um, I love, I love TV and um, I could never stop watching it. So I have the greatest job in the world. But, but uh, I have had, um, you know, uh, instances where I've interviewed people and this is not happening so much now, maybe because things are more like with the internet and all it's it. But a few years ago or before the internet got big, there was a wave of time when it seemed like a lot of people, even people in school studying film and TV, wouldn't watch TV because there was a, like a snobbery about, well, we're film people and we don't, you know, we, they look down their nose and like, it's like, we don't watch TV. And I, there was like a year, I don't know when it was, but somewhere in the 90s where I was, I interviewed a series of people all through that year where the standard phrase seemed to be in my office, you know, I'd be interviewing someone and I'd say, well, what shows do you like? It, whether, whether it was for a staff writer position or assistant position. What shows do you like? Because that's an instant bond. I guess if you watch, you know, Mad Men, I'm going to be your best friend. Um, and that particular year, I got the answer over and over again. Oh, well, pff, I don't watch TV. And I was like, um, wait a minute, where are we right now? Warner Brothers Studios? What? You don't what? Well, you're, you're here interviewing for TV job. I know. I'd love to work in it, but I don't watch it. I, I even got from college students, I don't own a television. I don't have a television set. And I'm like, you majored in film or whatever. And they're like, yes, well, I watched Truffaut and this and that, but, you know, I don't watch TV. 
And I literally threw people out of my office. I was furious. And I said, don't even waste my time and come in here and tell me that you don't watch TV. Um, and, but I think they thought that it would give them some cachet of some kind. And so I think there used to be a, a little bit of like an embarrassment about TV. And now I think that's sort of disappeared. I think there's some great material on. I personally think there's better uh, um, writing going on in television than a lot of features these days. I don't go to the movies. I don't go to the movies. I think the best writing, I mean, there were great movies, those historical movies, but today, I mean, a lot of the blockbusters, I go, and if, if the writing is bad, I just, I can't stand it, and I think, oh my God, they spent all those millions on this pile of you-know-what, and our show has to fight for every penny, but the, the, the difference is the writing. You can spend $50 billion on a movie. If it's not a good script, it's really going to, it's going to suck, and TV, you know, is, is a little bit, I know you think it's funny to say it's guerrilla filmmaking, because, you know, like Ann said, you, you know, making movies on campus, that's guerrilla filmmaking, but sometimes we feel like we're guerrilla filmmaking, because even, you know, $2 million, $3 million doesn't go very far um, in today's world when they are making movies for, you know, millions and millions and millions, and um, some of the work being done, some of the uh, ways that we, you know, borrow from Peter to pay Paul, and we and grab and steal this and that, and 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 uh, we do manage to to get um, the most bang for our buck and make shows that look, I think, um, as good as some movies. And a lot of it is, you know, if the heart of it is the good writing, then then it's good. But I'm I'm a total TV person, and I think if you're going to work in the business or study the business, you better love it and be proud to admit that you love it. And there's nothing, you know, to be shamed of. <laughs> Thanks. We have time for one more question. I'll take it from a conference participant. Okay. Hi there. I used to be one of those people who didn't watch TV. Um, <laughs> and look what happened to me. Um, actually, you know, I actually do research on um, internet fan culture. So I was into this really for the writers and I guess also for Dana. Um, in terms of how, I mean, there's always been, certainly I've seen in my work, the constant struggle between, man, uh, between fans and sort of the producers in terms of negotiating meaning on the stories. And I'm wondering, I mean, you were saying personally, Tony, that you started, you know, you read some of the blogs and stuff and certainly things like Television Without Pity and of course a lot of the big networks have their own forums now. Um, I mean, I would say that's almost a main point of entry into fandom for many people. And so, but the question is, how is that going to feed back into writing as opposed to, I mean, you have a lot to do, um, you know, you can go through an episode and spend three hours on a forum and then there's 10 more pages the next day. So is there any way that the industry is going to take account of that as opposed to saying, oh, that's great, they're talking about us, in terms of the fans actually are pretty smart, they're pretty interesting, some of them have great ideas about the writing. I mean, how are you going to incorporate some of that creativity and that intense, you know, love for those shows? Is there any way that's going to come into the writing or be taken accounted for as opposed to, well, that's a great thing. We hope they buy more DVDs. DVDs. I mean, we know they're going to buy them. But what's about some of their ideas and, you know, about, about the stories? How are those, I guess, going to be taken up? Is that part of the future of television? Well, I think um, there's a there's a I know I was waxing poetic about it before. But there is a there is a little bit of a fine line uh, because um, sometimes it crosses over into criticism of of uh, or content or story ideas and things where you can't take it too seriously when you're reading it. You can't like you can't you know you you have to be true to the stories you want to tell. And if you start trying to second guess it by going, "Ooh, nobody likes this character," or "We have to change this storyline because on the blogs people are down on it," um, because you know sometimes 
sometimes if, a, if people hate a character, that, that's just as valuable of a thing. I mean, they're watching. It's like they get on the blog, I hate this character, I hate this character. And it's like they get on there every week to say how much they hate the character while they're watching the show. So you can't, like, um, tailor the content to what people are, are thinking. But um, certainly, you know, we feed off of the energy and enthusiasm. And, you, you know, you often hear actresses and actors talk about why they want to go to Broadway and do a play because they're on TV and it's, you know, just the camera. And then they go and they're on stage and they, they just feed off of that live uh, feeling from the live audience. And I think it's a little bit, been a little bit about like that with the Internet for us is that, you know, it used to be just the cold distance of, of television. And with the Internet, for us, it's like being on, you know, sort of like being, you know, in a play because it's the immediacy of the feedback. And when we read the blogs, I think, the, you know, one of the main things is just to be, you know, to get your batteries charged up from it and, and know that people are reading liking it or not liking it, you get the reaction and you just get juiced up by it. So that's been a, you know, a big thing. I, I completely um, agree with what you said. I mean, I, I, I always say I don't want to work with a writer that will take all of my notes. I love you. <laughs> and really what we're talking about is a different forum for criticism and notes. And if you look historically at great television and look at the creators, whether it's Jim Brooks, Stephen Bochco, David Kelly, Sean Ryan now, Ryan Murphy on Nip Tuck. It's a strong vision for a show. And there's a fine line between input, which helps to enhance that vision and helps to bring a writer to what's more compelling about storylines, how they could fine-tune characters and define them better, and where a writer is just all over the place searching for the vision for a show and taking input from anywhere, which is um, never going to be effective when you're trying, again, to tell broadly popular stories because the guy that is emailing you from Wisconsin, his point of view about, you know, how much of Jack's private life we should see is going to be completely different from, you know, the woman in, you know, on the West Coast. They're all going to have different desires. And I think, you know, the great thing is that there is so much passion for this medium. There's such a huge connection between people and the shows they watch and a, a connection to those characters that they watch. For us at the studio right now, it's it kind of goes into a research category where I feel research is very important diagnostically for things like confusion, um, where uh, people are not connecting yet with characters. But as Tony just said, I'm happy when we have a character that people hate because that's striking a very passionate chord in our viewers where they want to let us know how angry they are. But what I don't want is ambivalence. I want their passion, their anger, their love for our shows. You know, the the DVD market, I think, has been created by people who are so passionate about these shows that they want to collect. They want the added material. They want that box. They want it to sit in their den or in their family rooms. And to the extent that, you know, these people are speaking directly to our creators. And I think it's been a great boost because executives, for the most part, I mean, I really try to spend a lot of my day, I send emails at night to our creators no criticism. I loved your work. I have no notes for you. I loved that character. You have a phenomenal cast because so much of the um, insecurity in this business and the dwindling business model has made all of us so negative, so critical. You know, we go to, you know, the form of television that Anne's worked most in, you know, net executives have so negatively impacted impacted it. We go to run-throughs throughout a week on a show like Back to You. Um, 
and we watch the actors and we're a little bored and we're tired and we're not a studio audience that's so excited to be there and is going to give you so much energy and enthusiasm. So we're down, so the actors think we're doing a bad job and that's making us feel a little insecure, so we're not putting our best foot forward, which is making the words not sound particularly good, which is giving the writer anxiety and the director wants to kill himself. It's not an, it's not an accurate reflection of the work that's being done. It's just a dynamic between people who are, it's a very insular environment and what I like about the internet is it opens that up. Let's thank this extraordinarily rich and diverse panel. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.